0: So again, uh, welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. Uh, My name is Frank Wong. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, If you're new this morning, please do stick around after the service. If uh, you've not been here in a while, please also do stick around after the service. We'd love to catch up. Um, And if you're not new, please do look around. Uh, Look around for unfamiliar faces, folks that you don't know very well. Uh, In a church this size, it's easy to find your group of people and to essentially ignore the rest of the church. Uh, And we don't want to do that. That's not the idea behind the church. Uh, So do find folks that you don't know very well. Uh, Make it a point this morning to greet them, get to know them just a little bit. Uh, Before we hop into um, the word this morning, uh, a couple of announcements that uh, I forgot to put into the slideshow. That's my fault. Um, Majnik registrations are coming up very soon uh, for Senior High Majnik. If you have a senior high student and you have not told me already that uh, y- your student uh, would like to go, please uh, do let me know that uh, like tomorrow. <laughs> okay. Uh, also, uh, final registrations for the mission trip uh, are coming up as well. Um, for those of you that uh, don't know, I will actually not be going on this trip because I'll be on sabbatical. Uh, Coming June, July, and August. So, if that's news to you, I'm going on sabbatical for three months this summer. It's going to happen. Hopefully, we'll see. Um, and uh, but it would be a, it'll be a great time of serving folks in West Virginia. Uh, it was a great time the last two years that we've gone, and uh, it promises to be a great time this uh, this year as well. So please uh, do sign up uh, for that. Get your deposits in. You can send that to Andrea. Um, please turn in your Bibles to the book of Job. We have just started last week a sermon series on this uh, very lengthy book. And it's a book that, uh, if you know anything about Job, is a lot about lamenting and terrible things happening. And uh, we should strap in for the next few months because most of the time in these... uh, in, the, in this book, we're going to be dealing with hard things, uh, lamenting, grief. These are difficult things to, to deal with, and yet uh, we need to talk about these things. And so um, please uh, pay attention uh, as we go through um, this book. Also, um, it's a very repetitive book. And so if you, haven't, if you weren't here last week to hear Dr. Dave's sermon, Um, Never fear, we're going to cover much of the same ground this morning. Um, But please do uh, go and check out uh, his sermon last week uh, on the website because it helps set the stage for us to approach the book of Job properly. Uh, Chapters 1 and 2 are meant to set us on a foundation prior to getting into the actual lament cycles that we will see, uh, the dialogue between Job and his friends, Job and the Lord, and all of those sorts of things. So it will set us up well. And um, so we are going to be starting in Job uh, chapter 2, verse 1. Please pay attention as this is God's word. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself to the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job and that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, though you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin. All that a man has he will give for his life, but stretch out out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh, and he will curse you to to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery, with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes, then his wife said to him, "Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die!" But he said to her, "You speak as one of the foolish woman, uh, as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and not, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Now, when Job's three friends heard. Of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place. Elphias the Tamanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the uh, Namathite. They made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. And when they saw him from a great distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and wept. And they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights. And no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Let's pray. Father, as we continue to look at the calamity that you have brought upon Job, Lord, our instinct is to distance ourselves from that Uh, pain from that suffering. But Lord, I ask that you enable us to enter in, to sympathize and to empathize with what Job is going through, that we might feel what he is going through and see how it is we ought to lament and how we ought to grieve and mourn and to suffer well. Lord, as we come to these passages, we are also confronted with hard truths about the fact that we are not you, And so, Lord, would you show us the majesty of your grace, the majesty of your person, that we might know that you are God and that we are not, and that we might find comfort in that. Lord, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, grief upon grief. That's how Reverend Danny Edwards Luce started his Facebook post on Monday. You might remember hearing about uh, Reverend Edwards Luce back on January 15th. Uh, Mark Rist prayed for him uh, and his family during his pastoral prayer as he led us in worship. You see, Danny and his wife, Aubrey, had lost their son, Zachariah, during labor on January 4th. It was a devastating loss. And then this past Monday, just one month later, he woke up to a slew of missed calls and the news that his father had died early that morning. He had just spoken uh, to his father earlier that week. Um, His father had been recovering from a broken femur, and so he was trying to um, encourage his father, and they were planning to go visit uh, northwestern uh, or eastern Oregon for a fishing trip um, and to check out some new lakes. But all of that has turned to ash for Danny. All of his plans, all of his hopes are gone. He was in the midst of grieving his son and now this. He said that this is hard. He didn't know how else to put it. The enormity of what he was going through is almost incomprehensible. And the word hard just doesn't seem to cut it. Doesn't seem to do justice to what he's enduring. And yet, what else can we say? It's hard. So please be praying for Danny, his wife, for, um, for Aubrey, for his daughter Braylon, for his mom, his siblings, uh, for the church plant that he leads. Grief upon grief. It's a good way to sum up what we've seen in Job 1 and what we're going to see in Job 2. One after another, back in chapter 1, the messengers came to tell Job that all that he held dear and all that he had was destroyed. Great wealth, gone, taken. Seven sons and three daughters, destroyed and dead in a building collapse. The pride and joy of him and his wife, gone in an instant. Grief upon grief. When it rains, it pours. And as we come to Job 2, the hits don't stop coming. Look with me at verses 1 through 10. Here, chapter 2 essentially starts the same way that chapter 1 does. Satan comes into the presence of the Lord, and the same questions are asked. Where have you been, Satan, from going to and fro on the earth and walking up and down on it? And so Satan has been looking for so-called true believers, that he can entice and deceive and destroy. And God himself offers Job up once again. And what's interesting is that the Lord is basically telling Satan that he has lost the wager that he made in chapter 1. Job took everything that Satan threw at him and still held fast to the Lord, still held fast to his integrity. And what's more is that God Himself notes that Job did nothing to warrant the calamity that Satan had brought upon him. But that's not enough for Satan. Skin for skin, meaning that man has a remarkable capacity to compartmentalize bad circumstances and bad news, and to remember that he still got his health. Satan is basically saying that people. Are, happily, are happy to trade everything that they have for their own preservation. They can hold bad news at arm's length and say, well, at least I'm okay. It hasn't happened to me directly. That Job's worship is, again, not genuine because that he still has a reason to fear the Lord, and that's because he hasn't himself suffered directly. Plus, though calamity has come, Job still has a lot going for him. He still has his social standing as a pillar in the community, his upright reputation, and he still has his health. He's taken still He's taken heavy losses, incomprehensible losses, but he's still a great man. And so we see the divine gambit. Again, a second time as God puts Job in Satan's hands yet again. The only restriction this time is that Job's life must be spared. And why? So that his faith might be tested, that he might be able to give a witness to what he believes in. And Satan wastes no time. As soon as uh, they make the wager, he goes out and he strikes Job from head to foot with loathsome sores. I was talking to the Sunday School uh, class this morning. It's like imagining having a blister and for that blister to be so bad that it bleeds and for that to be covering every inch of your body so that you have no relief no matter in what position you sit or lay. Because even the soles of his feet are covered. Such is the physical torment of Satan's affliction of Job. This would have brought immense physical suffering, but it also serves to destroy Job's social standing as well. This would have been a skin disease akin to leprosy. And so in that moment when these sores appear, Job went from being a respected pillar of the community to an outcast. He would have been put out of the city to where all the other lepers would have been, scavenging around, the, church, around the, the city's trash heap where they would burn the refuse of the city. And so his life is transformed into a literal hellscape. He is sitting amidst burning ashes, scraping himself with a bit of broken pottery to maybe alleviate some of his sufferings this is a man that has been brought very low. His suffering is so great that not only do his friends barely recognize him, the toll is so great not only upon his stature, but also upon his body, but that the one remaining relationship that he has, there is only one remaining relationship that he has in his family, and that's his wife. His wife gives voice to the temptation that Satan so desperately wants Job to give into. Curse God and die. Can you imagine your wife looking at you and saying, just curse God and die? But why? Why does she say this to him? She says this because she can't bear to watch the man that she loves suffer like this. She just wants it to end, to put it put him out of his misery. She must have thought that death would have been a mercy for Job so great is his suffering. And yet in the midst of his incomprehensible suffering, Job still speaks to his wife with forbearance and gentleness. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Notice that he doesn't call actually call her foolish. It's not you foolish woman you're talking nonsense. This is Job's wife after all. Such a great and wise man would have chosen well. He would have chosen a good, a godly, a wise woman to be his wife. And we can't really go too hard on her about sort of suggesting that he curse God and die. Because remember her context. What has she lost? She's lost wealth and position, but most importantly, she's lost children the same losses that Job has endured, she has endured. And so when she tells Job to curse God and die, not only is she speaking out of her anguish, but she's also giving up something as well. Remember that widows back then would have been vulnerable. She would have had no material possessions. She likely would have been destitute, or she would have had to go back to her, uh, her parents. But even then, she would have had no prospects the outlook for Mrs. Job would have been very bleak as well. And so it's not easy for her to say such things to Job, but such is the magnitude of his suffering that she willingly and sacrificially says, just end it. And though Job wisely doesn't follow Mrs. Job's advice, there's still big questions for Job. Suffering always brings questions. And probably the biggest question and the first question is why? Why? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? That's the question that we ask all the time when things go sideways, and especially when the hits keep coming. It's the question that haunts us, and though Job hasn't asked the same question, we know it's coming. We know that this book has to deal with that question at some point, point. and so let's ask that question now. So that we can see sort of a foundation for us to move into those laments and to that questioning well. So why is Satan doing this? Why is God doing this? And as we go through those, those questions, I think we'll get a better sense of what Job is really up against and by extension, what we're up against when we go through suffering. So why is Satan doing this? What's his motivation in going after Job? Well, surely... The devil knows that God is not wrong, that God can't be wrong. Surely Satan understands that he's going to lose in the end. He knows that and he doesn't care. I don't think it matters to him. He's called the great deceiver for a reason, and I imagine that he's even deceived himself, that he has come to believe and internalize his own lies and doubts about who God is. And so, Satan is that sort of—he's a entity, a, a person that is really just a curmudgeon. Like he—he's a cynic. He just thinks that everything that could be wrong is wrong. That behind every blessing, there is sort of a reason to doubt that blessing. And so his M.O. is to destroy, divide, and deceive. But him coming after Job is nothing new. The challenge that he gives to God is nothing new. It mirrors, in fact, the challenge that he gave in the garden to Adam. When Satan challenges whether Job loves God for God or for the blessings, he's challenging both God and Job at the same time. First, he's again challenging the intrinsic worthiness of God. God, you're nothing but a blessing machine. Nobody cares about you. They only care about what you give them. Your worthiness is found in your ability to give others what they want. That's what Satan is saying. And then second, he's challenging Job through disasters and disease. He's not just challenging whether or not Job can endure, but also he's challenging Job's faith. You see, when these calamities come upon Job, what is Satan whispering there in his ear? He's there to whisper not so quietly into our ears and into our hearts, look at all that has happened. God let this happen to you. Does God really love you? The answer is no. That's what he's whispering. But do you see that the this, this, this strife and the division that Satan brings? He's doing all that he can to call into question the relationship between God and Job, just like he did in the garden. Adam, did God really say? Eve, did God really say? Is God looking out for what is best for you? Or is he just placing restrictions and calamities on your life? He's hoping that more people will join him in sin. He's hoping that he'll get to destroy more people as he destroyed Adam in the garden. And all of that is just another version of that first deception, that first doubt. Does God really love you? Where is the proof of his love for you? If you look out upon your life and you look at all the bad things that have happened to you, where is God in all of that? And, in, and post-fall, in some ways, Satan has a point. Satan is, in, in a way, justified in his view that people are selfish and self-centered. We see that in the self-promotion that is the bedrock of social media. We see that in the eager gleam in the eyes of our little, our little children and the perfunctory thank yous at Christmas time, at which point they then say, where's my next present? I want another one. And we see it in the way that we often deal and react to hardship. When we suffer, we make it all about us. There's a little bit of a curse against God in our hearts when things go bad. We see it too in Job's wife and in his friends who sit with him later on in this book. And all of that is pretty much expected from Satan. We expect him to destroy, to divide, to deceive. We expect that. That's nothing new. But what is God doing in all of this? Why is he he engaging in what Dr. Dave called the divine gambit? And why is he going along and listening to Satan to begin with? Why is God doing this? What is the purpose behind his allowance of Satan to go after Job? Both in chapter 1 and in chapter 2, it's a little strange. Because he says to Satan, Behold, have you considered my servant Job? It's like he's bringing up Job just to get him whacked. Right? Like, Satan didn't have Job in mind before God brought him up, so why is God making Job a target? And I think there are a few things that we can say definitively. First, we can say that God isn't doing this simply to prove to Satan that he's worthy of all praise intrinsically. After all, like, there's, there's, God doesn't need to prove anything to anyone, least of all to Satan. So he's not doing this just to sort of prove a point. And Second, I, don't, I, could, I think we can say that God is doing this for a reason, that there is a positive sort of rationale and motivation. It's not just a whim, though verse 3 might make us think otherwise. After all, he did say in verse 3 that you, that is Satan, incited me against him to destroy him without reason. But what God is referring to is that Job didn't bring this on himself. That God has, remember, declared him blameless and upright, a man who fears God and turns away from evil. And so he's not sinless, only Jesus was that, but he's a faithful man committed to serving the Lord. And we tend to think that calamities come for a reason, right? That there's a direct relationship between hard providence, calamities, and things going sideways and our sin. That we sin, and so the Lord whacks us. We often think that. But that's simply not the case, especially on this side of the cross. The Lord's forbearance in punishing sin is clear throughout the Old Testament. And it's just as clear he does so because Christ paid for that sin on the cross. And so we don't receive what we deserve. Why? Because Jesus has already taken it for us. But while Job doesn't bring this upon himself, that doesn't mean that there isn't any reason for his suffering. Job isn't just, crust, uh, isn't just getting crushed by the Lord on a whim. There's at least one reason for it, and that's to purify and sanctify Job's faith. Now, where do we get that idea? How does suffering help us in our faith? It seems kind of hard, right? Like, how does, how does things going bad serve to strengthen my faith in a God who is loving and good? Well, the apostles James, Peter, and Paul all tell us that trials are there to produce in us a faith that has been tested, perfected, and purified. Listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8-10. through For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia, For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. That sounds remarkably similar to what uh, what Job has gone through. And for Job, while he is a godly man, there are hints of underlying anxiety and insecurity within his faith. Remember that little note in chapter 1 about how Job would sacrifice for his children on their birthday in case they had sinned and hadn't properly atoned for that sin, hadn't addressed. So he's like, I just want to make sure that in case they missed some sins that were covered. There's a little bit of fear in his heart that the Lord isn't actually and ultimately for him and those whom he loves the most. He wonders, oh, maybe the Lord is going to whack me for something. Do you hear the quiet doubts that Satan is whispering in his ear, even in the midst of his faithful sacrificing? Is he really for me? Does he really love me? And now those insecurities and anxieties are being put to the test. They're being put in the fire of, okay, now my greatest fears have been realized. Is God still good? He didn't have to rely on God too much day to day, hour to hour, minute to minute when he was living in abundance. But now, when he's got nothing left, when all hope and joy is gone out of Job, then is God still good? Is God still for me? Do I still believe that? Is he still enough for Job, for you, for me? And as Job works through the next 40 chapters, we're, not, we're going to see not only that Job rests on a, bed, on a bedrock of the Lord, but that the Lord is sufficient for him. When we're not enough to meet the challenges of life, when we come up against something that is bigger than us, when we are brought low and when we have nothing left, it is right then and there that we find the sufficiency of the Lord. It's hard for, for folks like us to rely on the Lord, to know that we're relying on the Lord. We've got bank accounts, jobs, family members, that are willing to help. Even the government, we have our own talents, our own education, our own sense of I can do this. We fall back on all of those. When th- things get tough, those safety nets pr- provide a quite a bit of sufficiency. But for Job, all of those safety nets have failed. Everything is gone. And all he's got is the Lord. But even if we take away that God is sufficient for us, because that sufficiency is still something that we receive from the Lord, is the Lord still worthy of our praise even if he wasn't sufficient for us? Even if we ended up in total and utter disaster, would he still be good? And the answer must still be yes. Is he worthy simply because of who he is, full stop? And the answer is hard for us to swallow. You see, that question in itself is a trap because that question of is God worthy of our praise regardless of what happens to me, even if the worst comes to worst and every fear is realized and everything is gone? That question in itself is a trap because it sets us up as the judge. Who are we to determine if God is worthy? Who are we to withhold praise from the Almighty? We are not worthy. God is the source of all goodness. He is the creator and we are the creature. And so the hard truth of the matter is that the Lord would be glorified in our destruction because we are sinners. Think about that. That while we are being tormented with wrath and destruction that we would deserve, as we are burning in hell if we were there, we would have to give praise and glory to the Lord God Almighty because that's who he is. We would have to praise him for his glorious justice and his glorious perfection. And so the last thing that we can say definitively about what God is doing through Job is that it's for his own glory. That this is about God and not really all that much about Job. That in fact life, our lives are not about us, but it's about God. What is our chief end? Our chief end is not to glorify me. It's really not about me at all. It's all about what God receives. And that's glory and honor. There's a temptation to make suffering and calamity about us. It's about our pains, our suffering, our sorrows, our experience with injustice. And I think that's a layer of Satan's temptation to us. You see, I think that what Job is fighting against isn't just Satan and his schemes. It isn't just the calamities that he's going to have to endure. I think he's fighting against his own sinful pull toward making everything about himself. Satan's torment of him through calamity and disease are merely avenues to entice Job's own sinfulness to assert himself against the injustice of it all. Friends, what Job receives is not injustice. It's hard. But when we take a step back and we remember what our sin deserves, it is not injustice that Job receives. In some ways, Satan really just wants Job to say something along the lines of, this isn't what I deserve, God. He wants us to look upon our lives and to dwell upon our circumstances to begin to question God's goodness to us. Is holding on to God really what is best for me? That question is in all of us, and it's been been there since the beginning of sin in our lives. And from uh, from Job's perspective, not knowing the counsel of God, not knowing the interaction between God and Satan, and not knowing what his days will bring, there's a real temptation to answer that question with, no, God is not good. I cannot trust God. And so it is with us. Whenever we come up against something that we can't understand, when we don't know what God is doing in our lives, there is a temptation to say, okay, God, since I don't know what you're doing, you can't be doing something good. I have to look out for myself. I have to start looking out for me because I can't trust you to look out for me. And thankfully, so far, Job has resisted this temptation. He has rightly answered his wife that the Lord gives and takes away and that we receive both good and evil from his hand. You see, Job's victory in verse 10 isn't that he's standing firm in the face of great personal suffering. His victory is that he's keeping his eyes on the Lord and understanding his place. Thus, he did not sin with his lips. And for us, we can sum this up in the decision of Job to stay with God rather than to wallow in the despair of his experience, the real wisdom here is knowing that it is better in one it, that better is one day in His courts than a thousand days elsewhere. Knowing that God is our strength and portion, even when our hearts and flesh may fail, and knowing that God is the answer for our suffering. But what is God's answer? It's definitely that God is God and that you are not. Who are we, who are you, O man, to tell me what to do? That's the answer, not to spoil it. That's the answer that Job gets at the end of Job. You are, it is my pleasure to do with you as I wish. I don't have to answer to you. And so it is with us. We, don't ha- we aren't owed anything from the Lord. We're sinners. We're creatures. We don't, we don't deserve anything from him. And yet, and yet, the Lord does reveal something about himself. That he does reveal that he is a gracious God. That he does not give us what we deserve. And that de- what we deserve is no answer at all. destruction. But he doesn't give us that. He instead gives us an answer in the form of his son. Because while we are yet sinners, Christ sent Jesus. He didn't have to send a savior, but he did. He sent a man like Job, but a greater Job. He sends Jesus, and Jesus too was a great man. Jesus, too, was influential and had many people looking to him just as Job did. And just like Job, he was turned over to Satan for destruction. He not only bore the same pain and suffering and humiliation that Job did, but he did so on the cross at the hands of evil men, men used by Satan to crush Jesus. But there, there is no restriction on the suffering that Jesus endures. There, God is not saying, okay, Satan, you can do whatever you want, but you have to spare his life. No, now Jesus goes all the way to the end. There's no protection for Jesus. And why? Because the almighty, transcendent God loves you so much that he gave his only son for you that he might redeem you and have you as his own because he knows that you are unable to bear up under your own sin your own calamities. Jesus died so that you would never have to wonder in the deep, dark recesses of your heart whether God loves you. That's, what, that's the big question. Does God love me? In the good times, that's easy. In the bad times, that's hard. And in the bad times, Jesus says, you don't need to wonder. All we have to do is look at the cross and we see just how much God loves us. It is there that we know for sure that God is for us, and not just for us, but is best for us. All those insecurities, all those questions that suffering brings out, questioning whether or not God's way is the best way, all of those are put to to bed for Job and for us on the cross. We see how much the Lord loves us. He loves us to the end, and so we can trust him. And that lets us lament and grieve truly without fear. There is a tremendous amount of comfort knowing that the Lord is with us and that he will never forsake us. Why? Because Jesus was forsaken on our behalf. We can truly feel the pain and suffering in our lives and give it its due without being swallowed up by it. Why? Because we have Jesus. We have God with us. Jesus who understands our plight and the Holy Spirit ministering to us. Lamenting and grieving are intensely vulnerable and personal things for us to do. But God has shown beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is there for us, to protect us, not only from hard things, but also from ourselves, and that he will protect us to the end. He meets us at our lowest, when we are still sinners and his enemies, and praise God that he is God, and that we are not. Praise God that he does not leave us alone, that he meets us on that ash heap when we've lost everything and our friends don't even know what to say. Grief upon grief is met with the knowledge that the Lord will deliver us. Probably not immediately, or even as quickly as we would like, but we do know that grief upon grief is met with a hand that will wipe every tear away and that we will rejoice as Job does at the end. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, these things that we have looked at this morning are nothing new. For many of us, this is just a reminder, but a reminder that we need that we desperately need. Why? Because the pull towards making suffering about us, it's all too easy and all too tempting. And Lord, we know that you are doing something in our lives. We know that you are pleased to not leave us alone, but are with us always to the end. And so Lord, while we may not be able to see the reason For our suffering, while we might not be able to see what you're doing in our lives, Lord, we know that you are doing something, that you are drawing us closer to yourself to make us more like you. And so, Lord, we commit ourselves to you. Into your hands, we place our very selves, our very souls, knowing that you are our best, Lord, would you make our hearts rest in the surety of knowing that you love us, that we would never question whether or not you are what is best, whether or not you love us. For Lord, turn our eyes and fix our eyes upon Jesus who is on that cross for us. Lord, thank you for all that you've done. Thank you for all the ways in which you persevere us through calamity. Most of all, thank you for your son.